Back in the fall of 2010, Antonio Garcia Martinez was sitting in an apartment in the Mission in San Francisco. Antonio was co-founder and CEO of a brand new startup called Adgrok. It was an exciting time for him. Yeah, Antonio at the time had just finished his time at Y Combinator, which is kind of an elite startup accelerator of Silicon Valley. And at the end of your time at Y Combinator, you do a big presentation in front of a room of entrepreneurs and investors and show off in two minutes what you've made. And Antonio's presentation had gone really well. And a bunch of investors were interested in giving him funding. And now he's sitting in the apartment of his co-founder, and they're all drinking a couple of beers, and it's, it's thrilling, and they're right at the precipice of all this opportunity. And then they get a call from a lawyer representing their company, Adgrok. And the news is devastating. It turns out that their former employer is suing the company for stealing secrets and stealing intellectual property, and it's basically a death knell for Adgrok, because who in their right mind would invest in a company that is plagued by lawsuits? So things are looking pretty bad, but because this is Silicon Valley, where crazy dreams sometimes make it through, and Antonio is a scrappy guy, he's backed into a corner and he turns to his final resort, which is something that was definitely dishonest, and as we'll discover later in the show, of questionable legality as well. And it's something that happens here in the world of startups a lot more often than you'd think. If this had been public companies and we're on Wall Street, we would all have gone to jail, right? The level of sort of just generalized lying, backstabbing, uh, total conflict of interest and spilling of secrets is just rife in Silicon Valley. And it's just kind of the way it is. Hi, this is Brad Stone. And this is Ellen Hewitt. And this week on Decrypted, we're bringing you confessions of one startup founder who lied his way into raising money from investors and how he got away with it. There's a little bit of a dirty secret to the way these young startup founders work and get funded in the Valley. No matter how many charts and spreadsheets you see, a lot of these numbers are kind of made up. And how could they not be made up when these are brand new businesses creating things that have never existed before? You can't count on the normal rules of commerce and decency and transparency to apply here. If you're thinking about going into angel investing, consider yourself warned. So let's go back to this moment in 2010. Antonio was sitting in front of his spreadsheet trying to get a handle on what the next year or two is going to look like. So he's looking at his Excel, and on one side he has the cash that he expects to raise, as well as the revenue that he expects their soon-to-launch service to start to bring in. And plotted against that, he has all the company's costs, from salaries to office rent to these very expensive fees that he was going to have to pay his lawyers to fight this lawsuit. And it shows something pretty dire, that the company is going to run out of money in less than a year. Antonio published a best-selling book called Chaos Monkeys that came out a few months ago. And in the book, he has a passage which describes what he did next. And we actually had him read that to us. I didn't show the projections to the boys, i.e. my, my co-founders. It would just depress them pointlessly. I also didn't share it with investors. Agrock was dead on arrival if this got out. So I lied. I diminished the cost of the lawsuit to far below the undertaker's projections. The undertaker is the sort of grim-looking litigator that we had managed to, to cajole into defending us. Uh, meanwhile, moving our projected launch date forward to next month to generate revenues immediately, an impossibility given all the changes the boys were making to the product. Then I jacked up the growth rate to an unconscionable amount. It was outright chicanery, cooking the books in the worst form, but it was either that or give up now, and surrender was unthinkable. I still can't believe the investors believed my numbers, but they did. I mean, we were raising money for the sake of basically 
continuing the company, but also defending ourselves with other people's money effectively. Yeah. Well, and I love that it's called the death clock, which yeah. I think, I mean, it, that you called the spreadsheet the death clock because it, it puts into perspective, like, what's at stake, which is this or nothing. I mean, you have no, no choice but to try to do what you could to make it happen. Right. I mean, that's the name of the startup game is that learning the game faster than you burn money. And that is, that is the day. So in the death clock, it was literally just a spreadsheet. And it had all our top line items, which is basically servers, rent, and humans. That was it. Um, against, you know, a cash pile. And we plotted it on a graph. And I have a metaphor in there that it kind of looked like one of those infographics you see with any plane crash. Like the plane's going okay, and then suddenly something happens, and then boom, you have like a smoking crater in the ground. Can you think back to that time and think about what, how did it feel to cook the books? I mean, what, what was going on in your head when you, when you changed these numbers to things you knew were untrue and not even remotely right. possible? I mean, I think this is how moral rationalizing happens, and I think it's fairly common. Um, and I applied the same you know, rational calculus later when I was considering deceiving my co-founders to go to Facebook instead of Twitter. It's for the greater good, right? <laughs> like, it, everything, the world will be just be better if we perpetrate this sort of not-so-minor lie and get the company funded and continue. And, and it turns out I was right. The, the investors ended up making money, right? They ended up doubling their money in six months. So even though investors were fed these complete fabrications about the future of Adgrok, they still ended up making a profit. Right. And most of that is thanks only to Twitter, which decided to buy Adgrok about six months after the seed round we're talking about. If anyone was going to be upset about being lied to, it would be a guy named Russ Siegelman. Russ was a longtime venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. He was an angel investor. He was really the biggest backer of Adgrok. And I called him after the book came out and asked him how he felt about being lied to. And here's what he said. Well, I, I certainly don't approve of submitting uh, projections to investors or anybody that you don't believe in. I, I don't I mean, that's not only dishonest, but it's 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 just not it's it's not good business practice. But to be honest with you, the reason I don't react too strongly to it is because I don't believe anybody can project with any level of faith, accuracy, or correctness uh, your revenues when you're at the seed stage. So, you know, I, I frankly couldn't have even, I, I probably would never have even noticed that the growth rate was unconscionably high, quote unquote, because I wouldn't have even looked at it. <laughs> funny because he asked me for that projection. <laughs> so do you think he just wanted to give the impression of reading it or? I think that the big hang up there was that he, no one wants to put money into a sinking ship, right? And the thought of putting money into a company that's fighting its way to have a lawsuit, and, the, and he felt he was subsidizing Fenwick, because I would literally take money from one rich guy and give it to another rich guy called a lawyer, and we would just be the middleman. He didn't want that to happen. Fenwick, by the way, is the law firm that Antonio hired to defend him in the lawsuit. And so I could only convince Russ to invest uh, after Fenwick basically agreed to loan us the money. And so, you know, it's possible that it was, you know, it was somewhat in my head and he didn't even look at the projections. Maybe. Well, it's interesting because he, he is a savvy investor and yeah. Chris Saka was a savvy investor. Right. And, and so it wouldn't surprise me if for very early companies, you know, projections are projections and they don't, they don't look at it. And they're, they're evaluating a company more on the quality of the team right. and the quality of the idea. Right. No, I, I think they are canny investors, right? I, mean, I remember one investor I won't name, we immediately excluded because he asked me for, uh, yeah, a business business plan and a, and a cash flow projection as like the first question he asked. And I never got it to him and it just, it felt like a very JV move. And, and you're absolutely right though. I think at that stage, what you invest is in the team, not some spreadsheet. 
So the question I think that interests us is, you know, how how widespread then is is as as you describe it outright chicanery? Is it is it is it seed stage startups or does it expand beyond that? Could we see a late stage company, uh, you know, that's not yet public that has that same sense of desperation? The spotlight is on them, uh, you know, resort to fudging the numbers. I think it's a little bit harder. Um, um, like a piece of advice I think I got from Russ actually was at the beginning it's easy to sell the dream right before you've actually launched because you can tell the story and no one cares about the numbers but after the dream has sort of launched at some point you have to provide numbers and maybe even audited numbers and so I think if you ask me is there is it common to have outright fraud at large companies just to name names not that I know anything but like an Uber and Airbnb I think no there isn't sort of widespread fraud they're being on. audited yeah, yeah they're being I, yeah there's no way you'd get away with with that what what I did at that level just absolutely I can't imagine that's that would happen the reason why this is all funny money and funny numbers is because, not to get too wonky, the, the valuations we're talking about are, are the theoretical valuation of the company if the company were to raise another round. In other words, these, these people are buying, they're lending you money on the terms that, hey, when you actually raise money, this is how much I paid per share, which is less than later investors. And that's what that number is. So it's an input to a theoretical calculation. It sounds a little bit... It has a little whiff of, of pyramid awesome. scheme to it. <laughs> uh, no, no, it absolutely is. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Just to be sure, I called up an expert on startups, Rob Siegel, not to be confused with Russ Siegelman, who we just talked to. Rob Siegel teaches at Stanford Business School, and he said that it's true that startups give investors optimistic projections all the time. When an entrepreneur at the seed level walks in, every sophisticated investor knows that the forecast is wrong. What you're looking for is the thought logic that goes into not the tops down, the market is worth $6 trillion and we're going to capture 5% of it, but how many units of whatever good or service are you going to sell and how much are people going to pay and how many people are out there that might buy it and what's the logic that's gone into that forecast? Are any customers using it already and are they paying a, a company any money? The forecast by definition are going to be wrong. It's impossible to know the future exactly, especially at the seed stage. So institutional investors know that when something comes in, it's probably aggressive. It's probably uh, slightly overstated. You hope it's not overlying, but you know if somebody's being aggressive, is there logic behind the expected ramp and forecast? That's completely common and normal. But Rob said that even in a world where rosy projections are the norm, he thinks Antonio crossed a line. So to Russ's point that he knows that the forecasts don't make sense, I think all VCs and all institutional investors and all sophisticated angels know that uh, the forecast is going to be wrong. The question is, is there good logic behind it? The point about whether or not this is legal, that's more worrisome in this particular example. Because if an entrepreneur is knowingly lying knowingly line that revenues will not come in at a certain time, knowingly line that the growth rate is impossible as opposed to aggressive, you know, um, is purposefully cutting down the costs of the expected lawsuit because the entrepreneur knows it's going to be much higher but is knowingly you know, dividing by two. That's where you get into to, you know, potential uh, legal complications because you are actually misleading investors. You're knowingly misleading investors. So, Ellen, you reviewed Chaos Monkeys for Business Week. We talked to Antonio. Did this episode make you more cynical about Silicon Valley? 
You know, I think as a startup reporter covering Silicon Valley, I get the impression that people lie to me all the time, but I'm never sure. So reading someone talking so baldly about it uh, definitely made me a little bit more cynical about it. It made that part of me that thinks people are really honest about their 800% month-over-month growth. Um, that part of me is smaller now. I guess I'm more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I guess I, I feel like no one here knows what's around the corner. Everyone's just trying to do their best impression of being confident about all these changes. And at least the savvy investors are going to take any projections with a grain of salt. And I feel maybe Antonio was grandstanding a little bit and describing what was really typical uncertainty as a sort of outright falsehood. And another wrinkle is, as Silicon Valley and, and startups become more popular and people see these huge gains coming out of it, I think we're going to see a lot more people outside of the traditional investors. We're talking celebrities, other people of high net worth, interested in investing in early stage startups, kind of like Antonio's. And I just wonder if it means that we should be hoping that they get more fair information. They don't have the same savvy that Russ does. They haven't been doing this for 30 years. That's a good point, right? Do, do Britney Spears and her agent know that the, and Antonio Garcia Martinez may be making up his numbers? She, probably not. <laughs> Maybe after you've written this book, this is uh, a, a moot question, but if you were to make a new startup today, and you ended up in a position like this again, death right. clock, right. would you lie? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Again, it's for the great yeah. because because when you're in the ship, you do everything to save the ship. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the way it works, right? I mean, Y Combinator was still relatively new back in 2010. Do you think that there are more checks and balances that exist in those programs and other other uh, incubators to ensure that there's a, yeah. a level of uh, honesty in the dialogue between investors and entrepreneurs? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, the reality is that you. It's never lying, right? Like, it's never outright fraud. Like, obviously, I'm a little hyperbolic in the book, right? I, I've, I've, I've personally seen very few cases of, like, fraud. Like, we claimed we had 100 million top line, and in fact, it was nothing. Like, I've never seen that before. But you could definitely, there's all sorts of ways you can lie with statistics and, and with figures that would impress, um, that would impress. And in YC startups, I think, maybe unfairly, are, character, are, famously, are famous for their up and to the right graphs, in which they rescale the y-axis to always make, look, make it look amazing on demo day, right? And so, you know, stuff like that, I think, is, is pretty common, and I think it still happens. And to Russ's point, investors are probably savvy to it. And right, they know, they know it. So, and, the, and the better question is, why do we even go through the charade, right? But yeah, I don't know, actually, that's a good question. Well, and so when, I, when we saw Russ's answer, which, which came in um, uh, pretty, you know, pretty soon, just before we talked to you, it made me think, um, you know, Russ has been doing this for decades. Yeah, yeah. He knows what's up. Yeah. If you continue to see, I think, a, a trend of more people, and we're talking like celebrities or other rich people with, with cash who want to get in on startups and, and seed investing is very um, attractive to them, do you think that changes the moral calculus at all? Like, is there more of a responsibility to be upfront? You'd like to think so, but... Not really. It's like the battlefield, and there's like no women and children out there, right? And like if you show up and you're the, you know, it's like the old joke about like if you're sitting at the poker table and you don't know who the sucker is, then it's you, right? Then like, it, you know, Silicon Valley is still that way. There it is. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We're a brand new show, and we'd love your help in spreading the word. If you have an iPhone, please subscribe to the show on your native podcast app and leave us a rating and a review there. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we're on a bunch of other platforms like SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And tell us what you thought of today's show. Write me on Twitter at, at Bradstone. And I'm on Twitter at Ellen Hewitt. 
This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen and Liz Smith and Aki Ito. Aaron Black assisted with recording. Alec McCabe as head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. 